0: If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. <clears throat> and what I want us to look at this weekend is just a little snippet from the Christmas narrative. In case you haven't noticed, we are smack in the middle of the Christmas season. In case you've been living in rock and you're just not sure what's going on, this is the Christmas season. And every year, at this point in my life, I think I'm going to be much farther along than I actually am. I, 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 you know, the Christmas lights are going to be hung the Christmas shopping is going to be done the house is going to be decorated and once again this year I have accomplished none of those <laughs> my house is decorated thanks to my loving wife who you know, does a great job of doing that but if it weren't for her it just won't look like Christmas around the house I still got Christmas shopping to do. You know what I'll be doing this week just to make up for it to just say I am on the job. So, but here's the truth. I love Christmas. I love this time of year, even though sometimes it's hectic and it's busy. It's an opportunity for me to spend time with my family. One of the things I love to do with my family is to watch the old Christmas specials. You know, like like the Charlie Brown Christmas special where, you know, Charlie Brown is trying to figure out the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas and just right smack dab in the middle, Linus just drops the gospel, you know, and tells us what the true Christmas is all about. And you're going, go Linus, you know. Or there's the Rudolph special where this crazy reindeer with a glowing nose saves Christmas and somehow finds the Isle of Misfit Toys. I can relate to the Isle of Misfit Toys. The one I don't get, however, is Frosty. Why is there a snowman that wishes me a happy birthday? I don't get it. It's weird. But we watch it anyhow. It's just something we do, but the best one is Elf, and we won't go there anyhow. um, But the best Christmas story, and the thing I look forward to the most, is when we take God's Word, and we open it up to the narrative of how Christ was born. And this has been going on in my life for as long as I can remember because every Christmas Eve, before we got to even open, one present, which was usually pajamas, woo-hoo, pajamas, it was the reading of God's Word. And that's something my father passed down to me, and it's something that I do with my kids. is the opportunity to open up God's Word and read about the birth of Christ. You see, I'm crazy enough to believe, I'm crazy enough to believe that every time we open up God's Word, every time we get into his word, that he has something for us, that he has something he wants us to take away from. And sometimes it's when we get into the familiar stories that we hear over and over and over that we can so easily just glaze over. We say, I've heard this, move on. And what I want us to do is not to glaze over this morning, but to understand that God has something for you. God has something for me because we are opening up his word in order for him to speak to us. The narrative about the wise men and King Herod is so full of wisdom that it can help us avoid negative outcomes. It can guide us toward positive opportunities, especially when it comes to worshiping God. I've I've titled the sermon, How to Avoid a Bad Christmas. And I'd have to say that the title is just a bit misleading because the message is not just about Christmas, but it's really how to avoid being so caught up in ourselves that we truly miss worshiping the king of kings. And what I want us to do is look at the wise men, because I believe that as we examine their actions, we'll also see something that will help us by looking at Herod. that says, we shouldn't focus on ourselves this Christmas or every day, but practical things that if we implement in our lives will help us get more caught up in Christ and less caught up in ourselves. And so what I want to do is I just want to jump off by asking a simple question. And the question is this, what motivates, what what is our motivation, what motivates us for celebrating Christmas? What is our motivation for celebrating Christmas? See, Christmas can unlock so many emotions, so many, uh, for people it can be a stressful time, it can be getting stuff done, it can be that over-emotional time, maybe there's something we're carrying with us, but for some, Christmas can just be that time that we just rather Avoid. It seems that our country has become less about the birth of a savior. And we celebrate the consumerism that is Christmas. And unless we live under a rock, we've all seen the Christmas ads, all these ads leading up to Christmas. Every store has a sale. Everyone competing for you know, our money. Advertisements telling us how much we need this or that. And then there's the Black Friday sales that are going on to help you get the things that you think you want. And this year, it was very confusing because Black Friday started on Thursday. Maybe just confusing for me. But if it's going to start on Thursday, call it something else. Black Friday is Friday. Thursday can be gray Thursday. Maybe charcoal Saturday or something like that. You know, don't confuse it. Don't mix it. But all of it was to say, we need you to spend your money. And I believe that the message behind all this chaos has nothing to do with the birth of a savior has everything to do with how much society is telling you, you deserve stuff. And all this stuff's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you feel more secure, more connected, more in charge, more alive. And somehow the true meaning is getting lost. See, Christmas isn't about stuff. Christmas is about how much And how passionately God wants a relationship with you and God wants a relationship with me. He wanted that so much that he gave the ultimate gift, which was his son. And his son came to earth, and we celebrate that at Christmas time. But the completion of that is that his son died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. That's what we celebrate, is that God gave us a savior. Christmas is about knowing that through his son we have power, Security. So let's read Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jew? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where's the Messiah who was born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for a child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. Pray with me. Father God, as we look at your word, as we examine your word, Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts. May your words be on my lips, Lord, and may all the distractions be faded away. Lord, if I get in the way of your words, remove me that they may hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we go on, I want to... You know to, to examine what the wise men did, but I think it's important that we pause and understand a few things about the villain of the Christmas narrative, King Herod. You know, the reason I believe knowing these things are important is because if we're not careful, we can fall in some of the same par- patterns that Herod did. And the first thing is this I want to point out is that King Herod was worried about power. He was drunk with power. He loved power. He had everything to do and he was so wrapped up in power You see, because he didn't come into power by chance. He was not born into it. He had to come through it through his competent abilities. He worked hard to claw his way to the very top. Herod would hold tightly to his power, and he would remove anyone who became a threat. In in his pursuit for power, Herod would have many people killed in order to keep his power. And some of those people included his brother-in-law, His mother in law, no comments needed, two of his sons, and even his wife, because they got in the way. He wanted his power, and he was worried about power and keeping his power. The second thing that he was worried about was he was worried about his possessions. He loved his possessions, he loved his stuff. He was proud of his stuff. And he had some major accomplishments. In fact, you know, he said, you know, everything a Roman Caesar, Caesar had, I'm entitled to. So he built seven different palaces. He had seven theaters constructed, one of which would seat 9,500 people. That's a lot of Star Wars fans, okay? It was a big theater. <clears throat> he even built a stadium for sporting events, long, the largest of which could seat 300,000 fans. And he's also credited for constructing the new temples for the Jews. Herod's temple. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you will still see his fingerprint in and through the land where everything this was from Herod, this was from Herod, these are the stones that Herod had quarried and brought and built the wall. Herod is all over Jerusalem. He was proud of his accomplishments, proud of his power and his possession, but he was worried about those things. And the third thing that he worried about was his own protection, he was paranoid. And when he became king, he built emergency fortresses all over. Each one of them were heavily armed and well provided for. And he also established a great network of spies. He was obsessed with doing what he must to keep the throne. And so he was that king that didn't let anything get past him. Someone should inform him if there's a threat coming. Someone could whisk him away to one of his fortresses if he felt threatened, if someone was coming after him. He was paranoid. He wanted his power, his possession, and his protection. And I think that's three things that if we're honest, sometimes we reach out for and try to keep a hold of as our own power, our own possessions, and our own protection. Three things that I believe we chase. Three things we desire. And truthfully, those three things only come through God. And and so here's the clash. Herod the great king of the Jews is slowly dying of disease. And he's rapidly losing his mind. But he's still the king. And then one day, word comes to him from Jerusalem that some visitors have arrived from the east. These were strange men asking strange questions that disturbed the king and the entire community. They showed up and they said, where is the one who's been born the king of the Jew? Now what's interesting is, Herod fought all his time to retain the title king of the Jews. Now somebody shows up and says, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? They said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the magi, the wise men, how many? I don't know. Maybe there were three, maybe there are five. I think you say three because that's what fits into the nativity box. nice and neat. I don't know how many magi there were, but the magi or the wise men were looking for the one who was born the king of the Jews. And imagine how that must have just rocked Herod's world. Imagine how Herod must have said, well, wait a minute. What do you mean born the king of the Jews? I've worked so hard to retain this title, to keep my throne. I've fought and I've killed to retain this kingship and now you're going to tell me that somebody is born to take over he was so paranoid about keeping what he had that he had his spies looking out for the threads and here something just snuck in the back door scripture tells us that when herod heard this he was disturbed as if he wasn't disturbed to begin with he was disturbed and all jerusalem with him Now, I I think based on what we know about Herod, we can understand why he was disturbed to learn of a child-born king of the Jews. But I wonder, though, why all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Were they disturbed because they liked where they were at in life? Were they comfortable with that? And they know that if King Herod got upset, maybe that's gonna rock the economy a little bit. Maybe it's gonna mess things up. Or did they get disturbed because they knew that when King Herod wasn't happy, there was going to be bloodshed that he would turn the, the whole city upside down in order for him to retain what he had. What we do know is that Herod wanted to know more about this king of the Jew and, he, and where he had been born. So he called together all the chief priests and the teachers of law and asked them, where is the Messiah? Where was he born? And they responded immediately, in Bethlehem in Judea. And then they went on to quote Micah chapter 2, and he says, O you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd the flock of the people of Israel. So essentially, Herod's being told that this king, this baby born king of the Jews was just born in your own backyard. He slipped past all the spies. He's gotten through all the fortresses you set up, all the security systems you have, and boom, here's the king of Jews right here all up in his grill. And it unsettled Herod. He was so unsettled that he called a meeting of the wise men and asked them about the star they had seen. And he said, please go to Bethlehem. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go worship, which we know is a lie. His goal was not to go and worship. In fact, when they did not return to him, it says later on in verse 16, that when they did not return to him, that he was so vile that he ordered the, all the boys in Bethlehem and in the vicinity who were two years and under to be murdered. Because he was going to let nothing threaten what he had, the things that he was worried about. Now what I find so amazing What I find so amazing about this narrative is not that Herod in all his wickedness fails to have full control, but rather how the magi, how the wise men uh, stayed focused to their calling. These men did not lose sight of how God was leading them. They did not get distracted by an earthly king. Instead, they kept in pursuit of a heavenly king in, in order to humble themselves and worship the king of kings. Now, I'm just crazy enough to believe that God has a calling for each and every one of us, that he's already put on your heart something he wants you to accomplish, uh, something he's put in your life. He says, I have called you to this. You are not here by mistake. He did not put you on this earth to say, just exist. He says, I have a purpose and a point for you being here. And I think sometimes we just have to be crazy enough to follow it and to not be distracted by everything that comes our way, but in order to stay true to what He is asking us to do. As we press on, I believe there's a few things that we can grab a hold of that will allow us to follow the call that God has placed on our lives, the call to trust Him, the call to worship Him, the call to share Him. Our job is to push on and follow Him, honor Him, and live for Him. So, So how do we do that? The first way is this. Don't get distracted by an earthly king. Don't get distracted by an earthly king. It's so easy for us to get distracted. I I find it incredible that the wise men were so focused. They were so focused on what they had come to do that they did not get distracted by the king. They were so focused that royalty, even, even bad royalty didn't distract them. They knew what Herod was capable of. It was no, no hidden matter that Harry could have them wiped out. But instead they said, God has called us to go worship the king. We're going to follow the star and we're not going to be distracted by what this earthly king has for us. And I wonder for us, how much do we get distracted by the world around us? How much do we get distracted by what this, this world offers us? I mean, if you turn on the TV... It won't take long before we get sucked into a, a political debate on one side or the other, and especially now that the, you know, the, the, election, the, 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 the season is upon us for the, the elections. and you know, We see it in the papers. We hear it on the radio. And no matter where we stand, it only takes a few minutes for us to get on one side or the other, and we start blaming people on why the world is the way it is. You know, we blame the president or the government or our parents or somebody. We blame somebody for what's going on because somebody has to be at fault. And my point is, we can easily be distracted by those in power. And we can hope that through some miraculous way or turn of event, that they will turn the world around and provide for us the security for us to sleep at night. When all we're really doing is trusting in man. When our trust should be in God. The wise men knew of King Herod. They knew the kind of man he was, but instead of worrying about the king, instead of being distracted by the king of men, they were focused on the king of kings. They knew that their focus was on something greater than an earthly king could offer them. I think we get easily distracted. I think we're so easily to just, just every little shiny object grabs our attentions away from what God says to do in this to focus on Him and on His plan for our life. And too often we get distracted and instead of putting our eyes fixed solely on God or bringing our gaze back to Him, we look at the distractions and we wander off. The things of the, of the earth continue to distract us distract us. Our distractions, we need to remember that in and through our distraction, God is not distant. God is God, and He wants to protect us and provide for us. He wants to love us. In Matthew 6, 25, it says, there, this, it says here, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body. What you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air and do... They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? You see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all this stuff will be added to you as well. So we can't be distracted by what's going on and saying, how? How is this gonna happen? How am I gonna provide? Instead, we gotta be fixed on what God has for us. And understand that we can't be distracted by these powers. Instead, we need to pray for the people that are in power and not take our focus off of God and what he's calling us to just because the circumstances around us seem out of control. Instead, we need to seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and let God put all things into place. The second thing we need to do is we need to be overjoyed with God's direction. We need to be overjoyed With God's direction. Not just full of joy, but overjoyed (laughs) with God's direction. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And it's a very strong term that Matthew describes the response of these men when they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, with an abundance of joy. They say it's almost impossible to translate the reaction of the men to seeing the star. The the translation should express that it is the greatest possible joy that they felt because God was showing them the direction. And then when I read that, I have to ask, when was the last time? That we were overjoyed by what God was doing. That we had so much joy at the direction God was putting us in or the direction he was leading us in, that we were overjoyed. Not just happy, not just content, but overjoyed with God's direction. And so are we sold out? Are we beyond joyous with God's directing our lives? Or are we just tolerant and fighting him along the way, around each corner, just fighting him? The wise men left the presence of the king and became overjoyed because God was providing them clear direction for them to follow. So here's the picture I have The Magi are all dressed in their finest Jesus gear. They get their Jesus jerseys on, their faces are painted, and they're ready to follow the star. They're high fiving each other. I mean, these guys are excited. In fact, one of them started the wave. I don't know if you've ever seen the wave on top of a camel, but it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but in our world, too often, we only see this outwardly overjoyous expression when it comes to sporting events. And I'm not bagging on sporting events. I love sporting events. How many Broncos fans do we have? Seven. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> But the thing is, I mean, you can turn on the TV. And I, sometimes college sports is a lot more crazier than professional sports. But still, there's these people that are just so excited. I mean, think about when you, I think most of us have been there. Maybe you haven't. I know I have. Where your team comes from behind and pulls off the win. And you're jumping around. I don't care if you're by yourself in your living room and nobody's home. You're like, that was great. I, just, I mean, it's just coming out. And you're like, that was the best thing ever. Or if you're with your friends, you're high-fiving. I mean, you're throwing the bowl of chips and wondering who's going to clean that up. You're like, it's just a thing that comes out of us. And I wonder why. Why do we never approach worship with that much excitement? Why is it we don't have standing room only here? Why isn't people aren't lined up hoping to get a spot to come and worship instead that's the attitude we have towards sports towards you know going and seeing our favorite teams perform but when it comes to worshiping God and knowing that he has a plan and a purpose that we can follow simply by connecting with him we sort of come at it with this humdrum attitude of going yeah went to church today got my worship on That's not the attitude here. I I know Chad, the attitude is not, Chad's coming up and saying, we're just gonna worship. He approaches this as that we get to go to the throne room, we get to worship God. And I wonder what our heart attitude is. How often we come in here going, I'm overjoyed because I get to worship. Or how often we leave this place overjoyed because we got to connect and we got to worship a living God. What would it look like to be overjoyed with how God is working in our life. The third thing is this: we need to recognize the sovereignty of the Savior. The word sovereignty just means the supreme authority of a Savior. That God plays all authority on him on coming into the house Matthew 2:11 on coming into the house they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down it didn't say they asked questions it didn't say that they had to investigate it said they came into the house saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down they humbled themselves they knew that they were in the presence of the sovereignty of God the minute they came into the house, the presence, they knew that they were in the presence of the King of Jews. This child is the Son of God who was sent to rule the world and to save the people. God's power is established. All over. Understand, God is in control. He has sovereignty over the whole earth, and He sent His Son. In fact, Psalms 103, 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. And God, man, Jesus Christ, came to earth, and all that power was on His shoulders. And it wasn't that he was born, but it was because what he was going to do, the sovereignty, the authority of heaven is open up on his shoulders. His purpose is to pay the price for all mankind. That we don't have to worry about how we're going to spend eternity, but that we can have a relationship through him and his death on the cross. That's the hope that comes through the Christmas story. We can't just stop with the baby in the manger. We've got to understand that baby in the manger is the Christ on the cross. That all... Heaven on earth are placed upon Him. That there's a sovereignty there that we have to understand. The fourth thing is this. That we need to worship the Savior with our gifts. The second part of that verse is this. They bowed down and worshipped Him. Then they opened their treasures and presented Him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then I have to ask myself, what is our reason... For giving gifts. What is our reason that we, we give gifts? Do we give gifts because we want to honor the other person to say, I love you and I really want you to have this or that? Or do we give gifts out of obligation? This is that, you know, I know you're going to give me a fruitcake, so I should probably give you a cat type of attitude. You know, it's where we know that we just have to do it. You know, because he's okay, you gave me something, I gotta give you something. Thanks, here you go. Have a cat. Because if you really want a useless gift, it's a cat. (laughs) Anyhow. (laughs) Or do we give gifts? You know, is our attitude in giving gifts hoping that we're gonna get something in return? It's the power stance of gift giving. If I give them something nice, they'll feel bad and give me something nice in return. You know, what I mean is, when it comes to gift giving, do we approach it for power or possessions, or do we do it out of love? See, I don't see the wise men presenting the gold, frankincense, and myrrh going, man, we hope we have a good return on this investment. Instead, they're going, we want to honor you, we want to love you, we want to give to you because you are the king. And we have some pretty strange traditions. You know, I know one of the traditions we have in my family, maybe it's in yours, and I'm not saying it's a bad tradition, but every Christmas Eve, we set out a plate of cookies for Santa Claus. I am not judging. I think it's a good thing. I think Santa would like barbecue better. I'm just saying. I mean, if he's traveling the world, doing what he does, some pulled pork sure would be great. Just saying. But I know how, even you know, after years, after years, it's the last thing my children do before they go to bed is we gotta put out the cookies for Santa. And it has become tradition, and it's one of the things that we have fun with and it's grown it to today. Hey, We're gonna put out carrots for the reindeer, also. Okay. But they do it with such excitement they do it with such anticipation that every year we set that out and i wonder what it would look like if we approach it with the same way that we come and we worship god and we give our gifts to him and what a great picture we had just a few weeks ago during the first fruits offering when people came up here and laid their gifts out and i wonder what our culture would be like if we passed that tradition on to our kids that they saw as giving because out of love and what christ has done for us that we built such a tradition with them that they see us giving. That every weekend they're going, Mom, Dad, how are we giving today? That they're taking the lead just like the Christmas cookies. They're saying, Mom, Dad, we can't forget to give because He loves us, we have to give. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with your first fruits. In all your crop. Are we worshiping God by giving him a portion of what he's given us? And the last thing is this. Allow a savior to change your direction. And that's what it's all about. This young baby in a manger who grew up to be a child. Who grew up to be the Christ on the cross. We need to allow him to change our direction, and having been warned, it says in Matthew 212, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. Once we come into contact with Christ, we can never go back to where we 've come from. We have to leave that behind and press forward to what God has called us to become. We have to move forward knowing that we cannot take the old route any longer. And sometimes we gravitate back and we wonder why God is not growing us, God is not using us, because we're gravitating back to the old route. We have to return. We have to go a different direction. So we need to examine the routes that we're on. Is it taking you closer to Jesus or farther from Jesus? We need to... Allow the Savior in a manger to transform us and put us on a path that He has called us to.